On Being in Essence, today we explore one of St. Thomas Aquinas' greatest arguments for the existence of God on Spirit Inspire, starting right now. Broadcasting from the Cathedral of the Assumption in Louisville, Kentucky, this is Spirit Inspire. And now, here is your host. Hello and welcome to Spirit Inspire. I'm your host today, Eric Huff, joined with my wonderful friend and co-host, Mr. Isaac Fox. Hello, everyone. John couldn't be with us today, um, but we have an absolutely fantastic episode in the same vein as uh, some of our previous ones yeah. where we talk about philosophy. Uh, I would say that the catch on today's episode is that uh, it's on a topic that uh, I am almost entirely ignorant on, uh, which is very common, but not common on a <laughs> podcast that uh, I'm supposed to be hosting. So uh, I I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward uh, to what I'm going to be able to glean and learn. Sure. Well, first of all, I would say that um, I've yet to encounter many topics that you were actually ignorant on. So, yeah, I don't think that's a common thing at all. But last time... I appreciate you, the compliment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, it's true. Last time that you and I did an episode, uh, if anybody remembers or wants to go back and look at that, really had a lot of fun doing it. We talked about um, Bertrand Russell's little essay of why I'm not a Christian. Yeah. And in the process of that, we kind of began looking at the, the question of, of atheism from sort of a philosophical or intellectual perspective. And I don't think we got all the way through the essay. I think we're going to no. do another, we're going to do a follow-up on that. I feel like uh, we've said that on other episodes too. And haven't, yeah. I, I feel like that's going to be an ongoing thing. Like we're going to be like old men, like one of these days we're, we're going to do part two. Yeah. We, we just received this week. Um, pretty spectacular compliment or comment on our YouTube channel on that really? episode. So nice. That one's I need to go back and check that out. Still alive and kicking. People yeah. still like it. So thank you. Uh, a reminder right now, shameless plug, to comment on our videos, yes, uh, especially this one and uh, any of them that, that you enjoy from the past. If you have something to say, if you think of something to say, please, please, please comment. That really Absolutely. helps us beat the algorithm. And we will actually try to reply to those comments and take them seriously insofar as we have time, which... Yeah. Three of us is kind of lacking, but absolutely. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, Eric, I think we've talked in the past about us kind of doing a series where we, we kind of plunge a little bit more into philosophy and what might be called natural theology. In other words, um, kind of understanding how we can demonstrate the existence of God through reason um, and some of the things we can learn about God. And I am so excited for today's episode because we get to talk about what is my absolute favorite topic within that subject, namely St. Thomas Aquinas's little treatise called the De Ente et Essentia. Ooh, yes. So, um, well, I'm sure you're going to fill me in more, so I don't, I don't want to, to get ahead of it. Um, yeah. I'm sure that uh, our listeners know who St. Thomas Aquinas is, but uh, in the off chance, maybe maybe a very brief uh, bio. Yeah, it, well, I think that's good because it does actually kind of tie directly into this, and I would love to give a little historical context also about this particular treatise in a moment. St. Thomas Aquinas was a Dominican friar who lived in the 13th century, and he is, of course, a he's a canonized saint in the Catholic Church, which being a canonized saint has to do with some level of virtue and holiness and, you know, charity and all of that. But he's probably remembered mainly for being a rather enormous brain, right? He was a, a genius of no small level, brilliant theologian, brilliant philosopher. He wasn't just large in intellect though, right? He's large in body he too. He was physically large. And yeah. in fact, um, his teacher, St. Albert the Great, when Thomas was a young man in school, he was known to be rather silent. And so he received the nickname, due to his silence and his size, of the dumb ox. And St. Albert found out that the, um, the students called him the dumb ox. And he said, what, what was it? He said something to the effect that one day the dumb ox's bellow will be heard all around the world. Something along those yeah. lines. It's a great, great quote. But uh, 
Yes, he his work in theology has become almost like the standard in the Catholic Church, right? It's, it's influenced the Catholic Church for eight centuries at this point. His work in philosophy is outstanding as well. Um, and that that's probably why. I mean, he's, he's such a favorite. I think that if you're on the outskirts of Catholic circles and, and maybe you've seen some YouTube videos, um, You've probably heard of, or you've studied philosophy in any in any manner. You've probably heard of Saint Thomas Aquinas, right. and uh, that that wisdom, that intellect, and, and that saintly saintly character yeah. uh, are why he's revered as is one of the favorites of the church. And his works are are foundational to uh, particularly the the Catholic uh, lens of theology. Yeah. And he wrote what he's probably most famous for was writing a, an enormous. Uh, treatise on sort of systematic theology because he felt that all the previous ones had not been ordered in a very friendly way, like in a user-friendly way. Yeah. And so he set about writing the Summa Theologia, which he didn't quite finish before he died, but he got through a, a massive amount of pages on it. Um, and it's still, again, kind of like a textbook to this day. It's beautiful, yeah. And in that, um, where he treats early on of the existence of God, he gives five very short uh, sort of arguments for the existence of God, five ways he calls them. So in Latin, the via quinque. And these have become... One of my favorite things, sorry, is uh, whenever I first heard of this, it's often called proofs for the right. existence of God. And I think I saw a debate somewhere where where the I think it was maybe an atheist versus a, Christ, versus a Christian. They're like... Well, we, we want evidence, not proof, and these are proofs. And then um, I, I remember the Christians come back was like, well, it actually doesn't really even translate to proofs. Um, yeah, it's so way. It's way. Yeah. So, so it's that, like a path. Yeah, that argument doesn't even matter. And I remember it blowing up, and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Which I think actually is a great question, maybe one another episode we can look at, because I've seen this a lot, that arguments aren't evidence or proofs aren't evidence. Sure which I think is really limiting evidence to only that which is obtained by the senses, like scientific evidence, yeah. right? And I think that's a real concern. I wouldn't accept that premise. You know, I think that's a, that's, that's a conversation to dig into right there. Just, just based off of science and math, and there, there's plenty of presuppositions in, in both of those fields already that, uh, that I don't think that, that people who make that argument are, are really taking into account. Yeah, that's good. That's a great point because the, the principles which lie behind science and math being able to work at all are the same first principles that we have in philosophy, things like the law of non-contradiction. And you can't prove that through like a scientific method. So you're kind of relying even on philosophy to be able to do science, you know? Yeah. But, but Thomas's five ways became either famous or infamous over the last eight centuries. A lot of people um, are, are kind of all about them, and a lot of other people think they're dumb and outdated. Yeah. And I think we, we even hit on this a little bit in, in the episode we did on Bertrand Russell. And I think a lot of the reason for some perceived issues with them is because in the Summa, Thomas is writing a very, he's writing a textbook for seminarians, basically. Yeah. He is not trying to write a treatise on the existence of God. So the arguments are good, like they're soundly phrased. Um, but he's not trying to give supporting philosophical evidence for each of the premises. He's assuming that the students already get that. Yeah. And it's not the point of his work. Um, the, what we're going to talk about today, on and, the contrary, and also, also, I, I just uh, want to point out. Just we were talking about his character a bit. Mm -hmm. Is he's not averse, especially to to his own writings, to tearing down a bad argument yeah. or even a good one. I mean, that's how uh, the Summa's written. Is he he writes the objections out. Uh, first, before he provides the the evidence, and also uh, there was other arguments for the existence of God, uh, namely like the ontological argument yes. of Saint Anselm, that that were I think that it's coming back. I've heard mm -hmm. of Christian uh, theologians now, uh, you know, regearing it up. But uh, I think that Aquinas, Saint Thomas Aquinas's view is that it, it was not 
a good argument. Therefore, he ripped it to shreds. So, And the same as what's now called the Kalam cosmological argument. He did not care for either one of those, even though many Christian philosophers and even like uh, as, as some saints were and that's using the that. William Lane Craig uh, right William Lane Craig again yeah, and gave it the name but Come it's an old on, argument yeah. that goes back to the Islamic medieval philosophers yeah and uh, yeah Thomas was very very clear on on saying that he did not think these are good arguments and he went yeah he kind of went on the attack against them so he was I think a very intellectually honest person right and really and, fair and I think you just touched upon this this is kind of sorry you know, we could fanboy on St. Thomas yeah. Aquinas all day, and maybe we will. But sure. um, just thinking of, I know now with my cell phone that I have more information at my disposal at any given moment than the President of the United States had in 1992, right. the year I was born. Um, so to think that someone, um, you know, nearly a thousand years ago, 800 years ago or so, right, uh, had access to these vast amounts of information and was coming up with these arguments and being able to read um, all of the the early writings right. of philosophy, of theology from the Islamic perspective, from yes. the East, from the, the Greeks uh, in Ionia. It's just like, it's just mind blowing. It it's mind blowing what he was able to accomplish and uh, it, it has to be a grace from God. Like, there's no way, or maybe it's possible, but on a natural level, you don't have people with, you know, now we have AI. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about that a lot now. Yeah. And, and we'll, we won't think about it in any philosophical way, but just as a tool. Right. That We have computers this strong. We have, we have quantum uh, computing that, that can see things that are so small. Um, we have spaceships. We have the internet, yeah. we have iPhones. And to think like, I'm not seeing anybody create anything near, and maybe because the foundation's already laid and the, right. the truth's been laid bare, but I'm not seeing anybody with the resources we have today come up with, with even a tenth, a fraction right. of what uh, Aquinas is able to uh, not only contemplate, but um, really, really break down into itty bitty pieces. And I would, on that point, I would kind of like to, just two little things about Thomas that really impressed me, since we're, we mentioned him being intellectually honest, and then the access, as you were saying, he had to many different um, earlier thinkers. And it was in his days that the works of Aristotle were kind of coming back, yeah. right? They'd been sort of lost to the West for a long time. And a lot of people have said, well, Thomas is really influenced by Aristotle. He's like a Christian Aristotle. Well, there's certainly an influence there, but Thomas's influences were because both of far, the names start with an A, right? That's exactly that, right? that must be it. Yeah. yeah, but Thomas's influences are a lot broader than that. And one of the things I appreciate, and you have to look at this is the medieval age, right? Yeah. Uh, certainly, there's no <coughs> religious pluralism going on at the time, and you would expect him to probably be a little. Uh, negative towards thinkers of other religions. Sure. I really admire his openness because he's not only influenced by Aristotle, one of the other biggest influences in his philosophical writing is that of Avicenna or Avicenna, who was an Islamic medieval philosopher. Um, and that's, he, he quotes him almost authoritatively on many aspects of philosophy, just like he does Aristotle. But then again, he's not just fanboying about every philosopher. Averroes, who's another famous medieval Islamic philosopher, yeah. Thomas tends to trash him. Yeah. And so it's like, accept truth wherever you find it. Thomas well, was he's intellectually closer to honest a contemporary enough to do that. Too, right? <laughs> yeah. And he's also was honest enough to admit his own mistakes. There's a, a lovely bit somewhere later on in the Summa where he is proposing an argument. And when he gets to the end of it, he says, although elsewhere... Previously, I have said otherwise. So he corrects his own mistake. You know, like in a previous writing, I thought this, but now I realize that was wrong. And he's right. putting it down there on paper for all of history to see. Um, so you have a lot to admire there in his approach. Yeah. Um, and he had a pretty wide range of influences. And it's also interesting at the very start of the day, Ante at Ascentia, he begins by quoting Aristotle and Avicenna. Do they, do I know he has uh, one of my favorite things that I like about his writings is uh, it almost and maybe this was just the common 
I've only seen it in his writings, but it might have been more common at the time, is it almost seems like he has uh, pet names or nicknames for the people he's talking about. So like if he's quoting Paul, uh, St. Paul, he's calling him the apostle. And Aristotle is the, the philosopher. philosopher. And then uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, I think uh, Moses Mammonides, he's like the rabbi or something. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, probably something so, like, like that. So it, it seems like he has a the name. Mm -hmm. It could be a band. It could be like, uh, you know, in the 60s, they were big, like The Who, The Beatles. Yeah. He's it was, was kind of like pick any noun and put the word the in front of it, and you had a band name, and, The Sticks, The Monkeys. The... Now that I'm thinking about it, too, it might have been in Latin. There weren't any articles, so it might just say philosopher. Yeah, that's which would true, be. Too. But, but, but in any case, um, yeah, the, uh, the names he has on there, there's probably somebody better educated on this that can explain it and say it's not really that. But I always read it as he, he's given... Uh, uh, kind of a nickname on it. Yeah, I think it's a sign of respect too, because obviously you have many philosophers. You got Aristotle, you got Plato, you've got you know all of these, and to him, Aristotle is the philosopher. He's the guy. You know, he doesn't apply that term to the to the others, though he doesn't follow Aristotle in every point, um, which we're going to see that I think here today. So, well, with all that being said. Um, in light of his five ways or arguments or proofs, whatever you want to call them, for the existence of God, there is an argument that most people don't know about. That he, actually Thomas had many arguments for the existence of God throughout his entire corpus of writings. And what I, can, I feel is like the best, the richest, the most fundamental is going to happen here. Um, it's also the one I love the most. But I also think that it's written within a context where he is trying to provide the philosophical background and framework for it. And so once you get this one, then I think you understand how he meant the five ways to be understood, and they suddenly become even stronger, right? So while this is a little more dense, a little more complex, and I think most people would start with the five ways, I kind of thought on this show, Let's start with this argument, because if we get this one and later on do a show on the five ways, they're all going to make way more sense. Then. Yeah. And I think it's, it strengthens them. Yeah. And we can always point back to this one, too. Very good. All right. And one thing I would just kind of mention here before we get in is a little terminology. Uh, many times we'll come across words that have more than one definition. So we're going to talk a lot about metaphysics today. Okay. And metaphysics, of course, has a couple of meanings. And the one we probably see in our culture the Isn't most that now... that what Facebook changed its name to? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Meta something. Yeah, meta I don't think it was metaphysics. I think it was just meta, yeah. Okay. Um, but I, I think when we see that word more commonly just in our culture outside of an academic circle, it's going to refer to something more like mystical, borderline occult, something like that, right? Yeah. That's not what we're talking about here. This is the traditional philosophical use of the word metaphysics, which literally means after the physics. Mm -hmm. And it's the part of philosophy which deals primarily with the nature of being, right? Whatever that means. I think we're going to see that today. Um, but we're also going to pick up on that in the very title. So you're the Latin guy. De ente et essentia. That's, how do we translate that? Well, it is a little, there are multiple versions of it. I mean, classically, it gets translated on being and essence, but the two of words being are essence, so, yeah. in between ends and essentia, it's like so close that it's a little, there's probably multiple translations here, but I think sort of the popular version is being and essence, or a treatise on being and essence. And the thing I'd want to kind of say for, for clarification before we get in is to anybody listening, don't worry. This is a little dense. I'm going to try to go with Thomas, but I'm also going to try to use some alternative examples and we're going to break this down to the very basics and make it really really simple sure. and i think we're going to see how compelling and beautiful this is not only as an argument for the existence of god but sort of understanding reality itself it gives us like this intellectual framework a really solid foundation for how we view philosophy and and our understanding of the universe in general that's awesome yeah 
little history. Um, Thomas wrote this quite young. This is well before he wrote the Summa. He wrote this in 1255. He was a doctoral candidate for uh, getting a doctorate in theology at the University of Saint Jacques in Paris. Um, he was 30 years old when he wrote this, and it's a very short little treatise compared to some of his longer works. Uh, I think it runs about 17 pages, depending on the edition. Now, the reasons surrounding why he wrote this, I've heard this. I've not done any research of my own on it, so I'm going to go with this. But what I've heard is that some of his fellow Dominican brothers were struggling with philosophy in their classes, particularly metaphysics. They knew that Thomas was really great with this stuff. And uh, so they approached him and said, hey, brother Thomas, help us out a little bit. And so perhaps in response to that, he said, okay, and at 30 years old, dashed off this little treatise, which is probably one of the most important philosophical works the last thousand years in the West. <laughs> because that was the kind of genius he was. Um, and I bring that up for two reasons. One is, in the Dominican order today, the Dominicans are really known for being great with philosophy and systematic theology. Yeah. They're known to be kind of a very studious order. Sure. Um, we kind of think of them as the brains order of the church, you know. And Thomas is only about two generations, I think, after St. Dominic. Because Dominic was, what, 12th century and he's 13th century? So you'd have been like yeah. the second or third generation of Dominicans. They would have been pretty I, new still. I never, I never thought about how close to the founding he was. Yeah, yeah pretty, pretty close. And so I'm guessing that things weren't quite the same then, um, you know, if his fellow students are struggling with these aspects of philosophy, they were certainly interested in being preachers because the Dominican order is the order of preachers. They wanted to preach the word, preach truth. That was the charism. Yeah. Um, but I suspect that them being known as really great philosophers and theologians probably really has to do with Thomas's own influence. Right. Well, I'm thinking of them being a, a medican order at that time, like... They're probably like roughing it out in the street. Like these yeah. are going to be your rough and tumble like the, preachers. the Franciscans. Yeah. I would say that they were probably pretty similar in charism at that time, yeah. if, I, if I had to guess. Yeah. So anyway. Uh, on the, the Hounds of Heaven. Yes. I Francis mean, Thompson. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, they, they would, uh, they're probably. Oh, the Dogs of God. Yeah, yeah. The Dogs of yeah. God. Yeah. 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 Not the. Dominicanus. Not, not, not the poem, but, yeah. but that's also good. Yeah. Tell us. Okay. For our listeners, tell us the story behind that. I don't know if we've ever shared this before, and I love it. So, Which one? The uh, Dogs of God. Oh, I don't know it. You don't know the story? No. The, okay, Do you so, know it? Yeah, so St. Dominic's mother, before she gave birth to him, I, I don't know how early on this tradition occurs, uh, but supposedly she had a dream or vision. Okay, I do know this one. Yeah. Of, go on. Um, a dog with a torch in his mouth, like setting the yeah. world on fire kind of thing. Yeah. And she took it to be in reference to her son, Dominic, who was about to be born. But it create—and you'll see this in Dominican, um, you know, pictures and stuff. You'll right. see the, the dog with the torch in its Always mouth. Always have the dog. Uh, there's a great uh, Catholic medievalist podcast on YouTube called Dogs with Torches, right? So yeah. it's, it's connecting that. But it creates this beautiful Latin pun because the, the kind of the nickname the Dominicans took upon themselves were the dogs of God, right? Or the dogs of the Lord which is Domini, uh, Lord, and Canis, like canine yeah. in Latin. Of. So Dominicanus is almost identical to Dominicans. Oh. So it was this beautiful Latin pun that the Dominicans are Dominicanus. Okay. The, the yeah. Dominicans are the dogs of the Lord. Yeah, I hadn't heard it. Yeah. That's awesome. Pretty cool. So, um, all right. Well, Eric, should we dig into the Dante? It's time. Let's That's do time. it. Let's do it. So... I'm just going to kind of hit on a couple of points here, and you stop me at any any conceivable point. We'll go in for clarifications. Doesn't matter if we get all this done today, but I think that the background is super important. So I mentioned the reason we're doing this is to look at one of Thomas's greatest arguments for the existence of God, but that's not what the De Ente was about. He was writing this uh, as a philosophical treatise on metaphysics. And he's writing this apparently to help his Dominican brothers. And this is the real beauty of Thomas's proofs. We can imagine somebody, maybe an apologist of some kind, who believes in God, 
and then feels they need to support that belief to other people. So they, they're thinking, okay, I'm going to come up with a really great argument for the existence of God. Kind of out of the blue. Sure. I'm not aware of Thomas ever doing that. I, I don't know that he ever sat down and said, hmm, can I dream up a really convincing argument for the existence of God? Thomas's arguments for God always... That's going to be the thumbnail of the video is you scratching your face <laughs> with the pen. Hmm, yeah. Mm. Yeah, just like the... Yeah, I don't think Thomas would have had a... Uh, precise v5 pilot pen at the oh, time but, oh, but yeah. he did have a specialized desk that he could fit in yeah so i've heard yeah, yeah i didn't know this. to cut it out for his belly oh, yeah because yeah, he was the dumb ox well no i'm serious i think that i think that that i've read that yeah that i think he, he was a bit rotund i think that was i think him. but they had a specially made desk for him this does sound familiar i think maybe i've heard this too yeah is that a relic or do they have it still yeah i don't know um but thomas seems all of his arguments for god flow out of his sort of scientific examination of reality. Mm. So he he always has a foundation, a framework of first principles and reality. He's examining reality, and as he does so, it flows naturally that he looks for further and further explanations, and eventually that search, combined with the principles of truth that he's accepted at any rate, lead, it seems, inexorably to the existence of God. You never find these proofs just kind of in a vacuum with Thomas. Yeah. And that's why I really like the De Ente, is because this is a philosophical document. Mm. The proof for the existence of God occurs in it seemingly by accident in the fourth section of it. It flows from what he was discussing. He's not saying, okay, now I'm going to give you guys a proof for the existence right. of God. It just, he's saying, look, we're starting with understanding reality, and along the way, by the way, there has to be this supreme being, you know, <laughs> and it's like very clear now why, because he's laid the foundation. So I thought maybe, in, briefly, we should kind of go with him on that and look at that foundation. All right. Absolutely not. Excellent. I like your enthusiasm. So since we're not going to do that, since Eric has nixed that, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, let's talk about Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> All right. So, but, but you're like actually St. Thomas Aquinas thought of Winnie the Pooh. Uh... <laughs> that would be an interesting uh, podcast episode. Yeah, St. Thomas and Winnie the Pooh, the philosophies of. I know that they have the Tao of Pooh. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's actually been several philosophy books written about Winnie the Pooh. I know we were talking about um, Latin, but I, I do have a copy of Winnie L.A. Pooh. Nice. Uh, which is. The, I don't know which stories, maybe the original ones, but the entire book's in Latin. And it gets pretty pretty advanced stuff. For... When, my, uh, when my last son, Roman, was born, one of my friends uh, gave me a book, since the name was Roman, that was a Dr. Seuss in Latin. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah that's, pretty, a, that's, a, that's a cool one, too, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember which one it was. It might have been Green Eggs and Ham. So we have said that Thomas is writing this as an introduction for the Dominicans, and the title is On Being an Essence. Okay. And he begins with uh, saying a quote from Aristotle. He says, a small error at the outset can lead to great errors in the final conclusion, as the philosopher says. Right. It was funny. I didn't point this out uh, at the time, but whenever uh, I said uh, we should get somebody on here who knows more about this than than I do, uh, Deacon Michael Schultz was walking by and he popped his head back. That was right now when we were recording. That's yeah, awesome. I was like, I was like, oh, I should have, should have called him in here to to explain. Right he does yeah. have the reasoning on why, though, so we'll get him on yeah. there on a future episode to yeah, to explain. Um, All right, so the and philosophy. we could bring him on for the episode about Winnie the Pooh. That's true, too. Yeah. He might enjoy it. <laughs> so I think that, that this is really important, is what Thomas is hinting at here, or, or really stating is... You're going to have to go back. I'm, I'm... Oh, yes. So I was saying he's writing this as sort of a fundamental, like a foundation for the fellow Dominicans. Okay. The title is On Being an Essence, and then he begins with this quote from Aristotle, a small error at the outset can lead to great errors in the final conclusion, as the philosopher says. Yeah. And he's quoting Aristotle. Yes. And so I think that we need to understand this in two ways. One is, he's going to follow this up in a moment by saying we need to define our terms right. Okay, yeah. Which is super important. But I think also we need to view this it's as saying... It's reminded me of the Russell episode. Yes, we yeah. did talk about that. Yeah. 
I think we also need to kind of understand this as saying that being and essence are also the place we need to start. They're the absolute foundation of learning philosophy. Okay. So where he then goes is to discuss what is meant by those two terms. Yeah. And what I'm going to spare us is actually quoting a lot of Thomas because it's pretty technical. It's pretty dry. Um, I'll quote him in a few spots, but I think we can, we can just think about this for a moment. What do we mean by these words being in essence? Mm. Well, for being, uh, we could substitute the word existence. And we're simply talking about anything which has real existence, right? Um, Thomas goes to a little bit of length here to say there are other uses of the word. They're sometimes used to define concepts of privations, which aren't talking about real things, like how blindness is really, he says, just the lack of sight. And so we talk about it if it's a real thing and it's not really, it's just a deprivation. I think we can skip some of that. Sure. I think uh, that Thomas is doing his usual, let's be really careful in defining everything accurately. Yeah. But I think we can just kind of skip forward here and say, we understand that what is being meant by being is something that exists in reality. Like I'm holding up my coffee mug right here. It's, this is, this is real. And it doesn't have to just be materially real things like our ideas. There's a reality there to thoughts and ideas. Yes. Right? Um, but then he digs in a little bit further on this term essence, and he gives here in uh, chapter one a little bit of uh, a little bit of, of a vocabulary lesson. He tells us that the word essence, um, there's a number of other words similar to it that we can use almost as um, synonyms, and he gives a little bit of history about why f philosophers use some of these different words, like kind of what they were thinking about when they came up with those words. And two of the words which I think are really useful to understanding what is meant by essence. Is he using the Greek here or what's the... What's well, the so he does, the biggest connection he makes is he says that essence is closely related to the Greek word usia. So like uh, substance, roughly. Okay. So like when we talk about, if we get into theology, the homo usius, is it, of the, uh, the incarnation of, of uh, or sorry, of the Trinity, the, of one substance, of the same substance. Yeah. So that is one of the words that he says we could use in place of essence would be the Greek usia. And uh, then we've also got a few other words. The ones which I think are going to be the most useful for us are going to be nature and the Latin word quiddity, which is a word I absolutely adore. I love the word quiddity and quiddittas. Because cool, yeah. it literally just means the whatness of a thing. Yeah, right? quid. So we're talking about the essential nature, what makes a thing what it is. And so the way I like to kind of talk about this, which I think may be a simpler way to help us understand these two terms, is with the, the two simple English words, that and what. So if I look at my coffee cup, I'm going to say that it exists. The fact that it's a coffee cup is what it is. Mm -hmm. So being or existence relates to the reality or thatness of a thing, and essence relates to the nature or the whatness of a thing. So essence is what kind of thing we've got once we've got it. Existence or being tells us that we've got something, it actually has reality to it. And then essence tells us what kind of thing it is that we're now looking at. Yeah. Does that seem like a reasonably good explanation of the two terms? Perfect. Excellent. Well, let me get a sip of water and we can move on then. Um, at this point, Thomas is going to spend quite a bit of time, because this is supposed to be kind of a primer in metaphysics, going into a lot of really technical stuff that does not apply right now to our dealing with the argument for the existence of God. So, and that's a lot of very old-fashioned Aristotelian terminology. I am going to spare us all that and skip. Sounds good to me. Because what he digs into here is the kind of traditional use of the words genus and species. Yeah. So we look into like, how do we understand the essence, the word essence as it relates to like a particular genus, like 
the essence of humanity as opposed to that of an individual and, and on and on. And he goes on yeah. for some pages with some very technical and very dense language here. But what I wanted to talk about for a moment is something, a term that is used in philosophy. The definition that we've given of being an essence would give us this idea that there is something different between those two words. We would call this a distinction. So, for example, if I go back to my coffee cup or my pen or whatever, there seems to be something different in saying that it exists versus what it is that exists. Yeah. And one way that I think is very helpful to think of this is, um, Eric, I know you've got some philosophy in your background, so you're familiar with the, the transcendentals. Sure. So uh, the transcendentals are... Um, being, goodness, and truth, right? Yeah. I think some people add beauty in there, but a lot of people say they shouldn't add it. But I think that depends on your definition of beauty. So what we're doing with the, with the transcendentals, we're looking at literally what transcends categories. So let's say you look at you and me. We have certain similarities. We're humans. We're males. We're similar age, you know. But then we have differences as well. You have better facial hair than I have, you know, stuff like that. Jealous of, of the the beard has gotten really great, by the way. Thank you, yeah. thank you. Um, let's look at something that is not as similar, like you and this table we're talking at. Not as much similar now, but there are still certain similarities between the category of table and the category of of Eric. Yeah, and so the similarities, like you're both made up of certain atomic structures or whatever, right? You're both material. You're both in this room. You both exist at the same time. These transcend the differences. Well, what if we imagine things that are so radically different, they seem to have almost nothing in common? Yeah. The one thing they will always have in common is being. If they actually exist, they at least have that in yeah. common. So being is the transcendental. It's what transcends all differences. Well, let's think about that then. Everything that actually exists has being. We can't talk about degrees of being. You either have existence or you have non-existence. It either exists or it don't. Yeah. So, in that sense, everything that exists is the same. Like, being is the same across everything that exists. How do we then account for what makes a difference? Why is my coffee cup different from me? If being was the only thing we could think about, and this coffee cup has being, and I have being, we ought to be identical. Right. So it is the nature or essence which gives us the, the distinction, the difference between me and the coffee cup. So all of this leads us to this idea of thinking that there is a very real distinction between being and essence. When we think about things in their most basic, most fundamental aspect, their being and essence are something somehow distinct from each other. There's a difference here, right? Right. So the term that I think we need to hone in on here for a couple of minutes, and then maybe it'd be a great time to take a little pause, Yeah. is in philosophy, we talk about real versus logical distinctions. And I want to explain that because I think it's critical to everything that comes next. A real distinction is just what it sounds like. Two things are really different, like me and the coffee cup. Right. So I'm distinct from the coffee cup. The amount of coffee that I consume, I'm not convinced I'm totally distinct from coffee because I think I'm 95% coffee at any point, but That's right. you get the idea. So what's a logical distinction? Well, a logical distinction is where we look at something from two different aspects that are not really different in the thing itself. We're just thinking about it from two different directions. Okay. And the example I like to use, because I think it, it's really easy, is that of fire. Yeah. Fire gives off light and heat. Okay. And so we tend to think of light and heat as two different things. Yeah. And I'm going to focus on one or the other depending on my circumstances. Like, let's say I'm out camping and it's dark. I'm like, okay, let's light a fire because it's dark. I can't see anything. Yeah. Or if I'm out camping and it's cold, I say, let's light a fire because the fire produces heat. So one day I'm talking about 
fire under the aspect of it being a light producing thing. And the next day I'm talking about it as being a heat producing thing. But the flame is just one flame. Right. What's this combustion, what's happening here is producing light and heat. There's not like an on off switch for the light part versus the heat part. It's right. just one thing. I've never seen a dark flame or a cold flame. Right. You? Right. Yeah. So we would call this a logical distinction between the light and the heat. It's really just one thing, but depending on the viewpoint I'm coming at it from, the way I'm thinking about it, there seems to be a distinction, but it's only in my mind. That's a logical distinction. So what we want to determine, and I think kind of what Thomas wants to determine is, is a distinction in things between being and essence a real distinction? Or is it just the way we're thinking about it? Is it just a logical distinction? Or are there really two, is there, is there a real distinction happening here down in the very most fundamental nature of things that exist? Is there a real distinction between being and essence? And he's going to say yes. And by saying yes, he's going to lead us into this incredible proof of how there has to be a God in whom being and essence are identical. In other words, a God whose very existence is pure being itself. So that's where we're going to go maybe after a short pause. All right. That sounds great. We'll be back with more Spirit Inspire here in a second. Hey everyone, this week's episode is sponsored by Family Renewal Project. FRP is a local theology of the body apostolate in service to the Archdiocese of Louisville. They're dedicated to renewing the culture through the renewal of the family. They have so many amazing things going on, so check them out at FamilyRenewalProject.com. Welcome back to Spirit Inspire. We're talking about the Deinte et Essentia with our good friend, Isaac Fox. Um, so let's, let's just jump right in, pick up so, where we left off, rocking and rolling. Yeah. So, uh, for, for anybody listening, you know, the first bit was, we kind of just talked about defining these terms being in essence, real versus logical distinctions. And so you might be tempted to wonder, well, what does all this have to do with Thomas's, you know, greatest proof for the existence of God? You know, where, where is all this going? Yeah. Um, so now let's get into that. Now that we've kind of really laid this groundwork, let's get into that. Um, I mentioned the difference right before the break between real versus logical distinctions. And what we need to know next is, is the difference between being in essence a real or a logical distinction? Yeah. And I'm just going to kind of mention this. When you look at Thomistic philosophers, you know, people like Gavin Kerr, like uh, John Whipple, um, you know, all, all these different great philosophers. Some of them argue a little bit between themselves as to precisely where Thomas uh, proves the real distinction. Right. And that's what might be called an inter-Thomistic uh, uh, argument. And it, it doesn't really matter. But I'm going to go with Dr. Gavin Kerr on this. But I'm going to kind of mention both parts of the argument. Okay. So... The Deante, as I said, is fairly short overall, about 17 pages, comprised of just a handful of fairly little chapters. And it's in chapter four that we're going to get the argument for God's existence and also the argument for the real distinction. And so what Thomas says, and this is where a lot of philosophers say he's proving the real distinction, between being and essence, is he says that we can understand the essence or nature of something even if it doesn't actually exist. And so people take that as kind of a proof of saying, well, being and essence are different. Because if you don't need being to understand essence, there's something different. Right. And the precise uh, example he uses is he says, I can understand what a man is or what a phoenix is and nevertheless not know whether either has existence in reality. Therefore, it is clear that existence is something other than the essence or quiddity. Okay. Is St. Clement who wrote about um, about the phoenix pretty heavily? I as, don't know. As if it's real? I don't know. Yeah, well, he didn't know. Well, this is kind of a little funny historical side note is, reading that sentence, you would think what Thomas is saying is whether one or the other exists in reality. And so we're assuming he's saying that men exist in reality and phoenixes don't. Right, that's what I assume. But even in the medieval era, phoenixes were assumed to exist. So he actually was just saying whether or not either of these two very real things might happen to exist at this moment or not, right? 
So uh, yeah, which is kind of kind of humorous. <laughs> okay. Same thing with the unicorns. Yeah. Uh, they thought they they really Actually existed. existed. Right. And the unicornis is in the in the Vulgate, and then it's yeah. unicorn even in the King James version. How do unicorns not exist? But the the aqua version, the water version of narwhals do. It doesn't. Which narwhals are pretty cool. Yeah, it doesn't. Add, it doesn't add up to me yeah. that. Uh, well, then you have rhinoceros as well. Yeah. Which is kind of an unicornus. It's not as cool as the horse with the no, magic not. horse. And also, how do we have giraffe? Mm-hmm. Don't they have like a blue tongue giraffes? A blue tongue, so. longed neck yeah. with spots all over it, and like these like alien horns. It feels like we should have a horse-like or deer-like animal with a horn in the middle of its forehead, doesn't it? Yeah, it seems like it auto exists. Just seems seems legit. Um, yeah, you know, but maybe they're just so magical we never see them. Maybe that's yeah, it. It's funny how. Um, Speaking of that, it also reminds me of just just our understanding of uh, the natural world and order of things. I think it was like a year or two after George Washington died that they discovered the first dinosaur bones. Really? That that they could you know say for sure that these are you know giant. I guess now they're closer to birds, but lizard monsters uh, yeah. room that roam the earth and really millions of years ago. As far as history goes, that's pretty recent. Yeah, you know, and now it's, not it's that just long something ago. that is just so generally assumed, and we know so much about the dinosaurs. Right, and growing up in the nineties, species, and growing up in the nineties, like dinosaurs were everything. Yeah, you know, <laughs> well, they were to a couple of my kids for a while too. So, um, well, anyway. Um, this is where some people say he makes a real distinction argument. Um, Dr. Gavin Kerr, who I really like, he's a wonderful Irish Thomas, he says it comes right after this. And I'm going to kind of run through that argument. Because what St. Thomas does next is really give this really awesome argument in which we're saying, what is the other option? What if they are not distinct? What if being and essence are really the same thing? Yeah. And then he proves not that there is such a thing yet. That's going to come later on. But purely taken as a hypothetical, he proves really well here that if such a thing exists, there could only be one of them. So by virtue of that, all the different multiple things we see in the world have to have a real distinction. Okay. They can't have an, an identity between essence and existence. Okay. So either way, it might be a good argument. The second one is really super strong. So I'm going to run this real quickly. Okay. So he says, unless perhaps there is something whose uh, quiddity or essence is its very existence. And he says, this thing must be one and primary. And then he goes on to explain why. And again, I'm going to step away from some of the technical language here a little bit and give a, a sort of a roughed out version of this argument. So what's Thomas doing here? He's asking us to hypothetically assume perhaps there is a being in which essence and existence are identical. What would that mean? Well, it would mean, because essence is the nature of a thing, that its very nature is its being. In right. other words, its very nature is pure, unlimited being itself. It just like is the act of existence. Yeah. And so what Thomas then goes on to ask is, could there be more than one of those things? Yeah. And so he looks at some examples of what he calls multiplication, and not in the mathematical sense of two times three, but can you have multiples of this thing, right? And he goes by using a few examples to show that every form of multiplication requires adding something extra. So, for example, you and I are both humans, right? So we kind of have this human nature thing in common. Okay. But we are distinct examples of it. We're individual. Uh, we're individuals, right? Right. And so, one of the things that makes us distinct is that we're both existing in different distinct chunks of matter. Okay. He, he would call this signate matter. Sure. Um, so to our human nature, we have to add this particular matter. Okay. Um, he gives some other examples similar to this, in which we have to say that there are these, to have multiples of a thing, we have to kind of have some distinction that we're adding to the one which doesn't exist in the other. Okay. Right. Well, he's already defined this being in which being and essence are identical as just a pure unlimited act of being itself. So what can you add to it? Right. Nothing. nothing. 
Right. You can't have two of these beings. The one is already the pure, unlimited, just sheer being itself. You couldn't add anything to it. I get what you're saying. To have yeah. a multiple of it, right? Yeah, that you, makes perfect sense. And all, alternatively, another one couldn't lack something because then it wouldn't be the complete fullness of being. Right. Now, in things less than this, that's fine. I'm not the complete fullness of being. I'm a limited being. Right. So you can be a lot like me, but you can have something I don't have, like the beard, so I'm lacking the beard. Right. Or I can have something like a couple extra inches of height that you don't have. Yeah, so like you we had can, to go there. I had to go there. Uh, so like I can have something you lack, you can have something I lack, and that's what makes us more than one. We're not identical. We're not the same. Right. But in this case of something which is like pure, unlimited fullness of being, you can't do that. It right. can't lack anything, nor is there anything else left over to add to it. So he's saying there can only be one. Like, Which like means the Highlander, the one. There can only be one. Yeah. Yes. Which means what? It means that anything which is not the pure, unlimited, active, sheer being itself has a real distinction between being and essence. Because if it's not a real distinction, if it's only a logical distinction, if being and essence are really identical, there can only be one such thing. So everything we see around us in the universe has to have a real distinction between being and essence. Okay. Now, we're moving straight into the existence of God argument. And right. this is actually going to go pretty quickly. All right. So now that Thomas has established a real distinction, he says something here that's kind of a philosophical principle, but um, it's, it's pretty important. He goes on to say that a thing can have something, such as maybe like a quality or a power or property, okay. in one of two ways. It can either have received it from an outside source, or it can have it essentially, that is, of its own nature. Okay. And the example he gives, I love this because I love this awesome old-fashioned word that nobody ever uses anymore. Such, he says, as is risability in man. A word I did not know prior to hearing any of this, and apparently it means the ability to laugh. Really? Risability, yes. That's pretty cool. Which I love it because it also gives you this idea of rising or uplifting. So laughter is uplifting. I like that. I think it's a really cool cool word. We were talking about um, how I teach Latin. Yeah. We use the, the old Henley textbooks. Mm. And uh, Father, Father Henley, I learn my vocabulary in English grows more every time I look at the book than my Latin vocabulary. Yeah. He uses a lot of words. In any of the derivative examples, I'm like... Okay, I know the Latin word, but I've never heard of this English word, which you're claiming is yeah, the derivative. Yeah, so I, I'm like, so anytime we're in the class, you know, the students will be like, oh, what's this word? And I'm like, in Latin, I'm like, oh, I'm fine. It means X, Y, Z. Anytime it's like an English word, I'm like, uh, where's my Webster's <laughs> yeah, dictionary? Because yeah. it's, awesome. it's got me way thrown off. That's one of my favorite things, too, with, with any theological work or, or, or something of that nature. It does tend to be the English words. Mm -hmm. um, it reminds me too, I know this is way off topic, but uh, just reading through the dictionary, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, mm -hmm. he would like, I think whenever he was in the gulags, like he actually read the dictionary, the wow. Russian dictionary. So he would use words and people would write to him and be like, in his works and be like, this isn't even a real word. You just made it up. He's like, actually, it's in the dictionary. <laughs> and like, I, I've always thought I want to be that guy. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a little... Maybe uh, not the gulag part. But. Not the gulag part, and I don't know. It is a little presumptuous to uh, to yeah. use words literally no one else in Russian literature ever used. But to have like, like, developed such a fantastic vocabulary through studying the dictionary, that's pretty cool. That's it. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, so, oh yeah, risability. That's where we're, that's where yes, we're going. Yes, risability. So, risability in man. He gives this as an example. And here's, here's how... I just want to point out I didn't know the word until you just said it. I'm glad it, so, you didn't because yeah. it was totally new to me it's as well awesome. when I first yeah. learned, started learning a while back about the Dante. So um, the ability to laugh in man, he gives this as an example of having something by, your own, by a thing's own nature. In other words, having it essentially. Yeah. And here's why. Laughter requires two things. It requires the ability to understand the joke and intellect. And it requires the physical capability to do the laughing. Well, the definition or the essence, the nature of being human is to be a rational animal. Right. 
So if we consider our other two options, angels are intelligent, so they could totally understand a joke, but they don't have the ability to laugh. Yeah. Animals have the ability to laugh physically. Some make laughing sounds, but they don't understand the joke. Why do uh, why do angels? Why can angels fly? I don't know why. Because they take themselves lightly. Oh. I think that's the joke. I don't that's, know. I might have butchered it. It seems exactly right. That's like a perfect dad joke for me. I'm going to have to use that I one. Feel like, uh, I feel like Dr. Kraft said has said that. Probably. Has said I as much probably before. Has. Yeah. So what Thomas is getting at here is that risability is something people have by virtue of their nature being a rational animal. Like that's right. actually our nature is to be a rational animal. And so risability is something that flows from that. It's part of our essence, part of our nature. Right. But then he gives another example of we can also have something which isn't part of our nature. We can receive it. And he uses here some examples um, here and elsewhere in his other works. Uh, one of them that I like is the idea of a fire heating a pot. Yeah. So we might have, let's say it's soup in the pot. The soup is hot. The pot is hot. It's starting to sound like Dr. Seuss, I know. <laughs> and the fire is hot. But it is not part of the essence or nature of soup to be hot, because if you remove it from the, if it's part of its nature, like it's always going to be hot, right? Right. The moment you remove it from the heat, it starts getting cold. Same is true of the pot, right? It's not its essential nature to be hot. Its essential nature is such that it can receive heat. Right. But if its nature was heat producing, it would always produce heat. Right. But we take it off the fire, that goes away. Right. But the essential nature of fire is to be hot, hot, right? So the fire has heat by virtue of its essence or nature. The pot and the soup have it by virtue of receiving it from an outside source. Okay, that makes sense. So Thomas says, all right, we've said that things around us are composite. They're composed of being and essence. There's a real distinction between being and essence. Um, so do these things have being from an outside source or do they have it by virtue of their own essence or nature? That's the only two ways we can have something. Right. We either have it essentially or we got it from somewhere else. Well, the answer here is pretty clear. It can't be because of a thing's essence. Because if the essence gave being to itself, it would have had to already exist yeah. to be able to give itself being, which yeah. is like completely like this doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. Also, you run back into this problem, therefore, of saying that it would have its being essentially, its being in essence to be identical. So Thomas says that doesn't work. Anything we see around us in which being and essence are not identical, such as this coffee mug, has received its being from an outside source. Cool. Well, now he runs what we're probably very familiar with if you look to the five ways. His famous argument against infinite causal regresses. That's a mouthful. Yeah. All he's saying is, if something received its existence from something else, and that thing received its existence from something else, you can't keep going back to infinity. Because what you wind up with is an infinite collection of things that all need to receive their being from an outside source. Right. And there just isn't any outside source, so they never have being. It's back to the turtles all the way down. It's back to turtles all the way down, right? And so what he says is, this means that there has to be that thing that we talked about hypothetically earlier, something which does have existence by virtue of its very essence. In other words, in which being and essence are identical. There has to be something which is the pure act of being itself, namely God. All right. Boom. So, and boom goes the dynamite. Right. Well, in, in the few minutes we got left left here, let's kind of like maybe tease this out a little bit and think about it because one of the things, and this, if we ever do a, a one on the the five ways, this is really important to understanding the fourth way, which is often very confusing to people. Remind me which one's the fourth way. The fourth way is the one where he talks about the uh, gradation of things. Okay. And if you know, he's like. So there, ha you know, if there's good or better, there has to be a best sort of thing. That's how we read it. Most true, most noble. Yes. Most being, most perfect. And if you'll remember, um, in 
Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, yeah. he very famously has the line, because he doesn't understand the argument at all, of saying like, well, then there must be a most uh, a most stinky, right? You know, he talks about there must be that one which is the, the supreme stinker, you know, and it's kind of like his typical humorous sort of rhetoric. But he is pretty this funny. is because he doesn't actually understand the background metaphysics that Thomas is talking about. Yeah. Common. So what Thomas is doing here is something called the principle of participation. And we said back at the beginning that Thomas, everybody says he's like a Christian Aristotle. I would argue that point. His um, terminology is very Aristotelian. Yeah. But he has other influences, including on this point, which is so important to his thought. Heavily Neoplatonic. Yeah. And without trying to get into all of that, which would be a total rabbit hole, let me just explain what this participation theory is. What's going on here is that if, if I receive something from an outside source, right. it really never becomes mine essentially. I'm just participating in what the outside source has. Right. So... Thomas gives this example in one of his other works. I believe it is in the De Potentia. He talks about approaching a house, and it's cold, and you get into the house, and it's warmer. And you go to another room, it's warmer still. We're going to assume there's a source to that heat, and that's the fireplace. Right. And what's happening here is that out of all these warm spots in the house, only the fireplace has the heat Essentially, only the fire is really hot in its very essence. The next room and then the outer room and the room further out from that are simply participating in the heat of the fire. They never like take that heat and once the heat's gone, they're like, hey, we're still hot forever and ever. <laughs> We've got it. It's ours now. Right. They participate in it. So the heat in the fireplace is also the cause of the warmth that all the other areas have that are participating in it. So what Thomas is really getting down to here is this very Neoplatonic, Neoplatonic idea that all of us who have being, all us composite creatures who are composed of being and essence, mm -hmm. we have being only because we participate in the one and only source of being, which is God himself. God himself, yeah. Um, and when you think about this from several different angles, you begin to realize that what he's saying is really actually necessary. There is no way to understand existence or reality to explain any reason at all behind anything unless there is truly something which just is existence itself. Then we can understand all of the other things which are kind of like limited examples of existence. Um, but what I love about this argument is if you look at the five ways, you remember he ends each of them by saying, and this all men call God. Sure. He never says this is God. Um, he's going to go on further to tell us more things we need to know about God. And one of the, the big pushbacks that's happened over time, especially by people who don't read the following chapters, yeah. is to say, okay, cool. Let's suppose I agree with your argument uh, and we've got a first cause. Maybe there has to be a first cause or a, a prime mover. Well, why does that have to be God? Why couldn't it just be a natural cause? Why couldn't it just be a super intelligent alien? <laughs> you know, something like that. And so what we typically have to do then is bring in a whole bunch of other arguments to prove why God is a spirit, why God is a person, why God is immortal, eternal, all of these other attributes that we say God is. One of the things that I love, and why there's only one of them, for example, like why there's only one God instead of many. Yeah. So one of the things that I love about the Deante argument, because it's so fundamental, is that the answers to all those questions appear immediately. Yeah. Number one, it's already been one of the premises that only one such thing can exist. Right. So right there, we can scratch away the idea of any polytheism. There can only be one God. Right. Number two, <laughs> it has to be eternal. Its very nature is to exist. It is existence itself. It right. cannot be destroyed. It can't come into existence. It can't go out of existence. Uh, number three, it obviously can't be anything material because matter by its very nature 
can be changed, manipulated, twisted. It, does, it is clearly uh, something in which being and, and essence are non-identical. And so it can't be anything like that. So it's immaterial, it's eternal, there's only one. Uh, because it is being itself, every other thing which has being is dependent upon it. So it's like the first cause of everything, and that means it's omnipotent, it's all-powerful. There is no, no lesser being that it cannot bring into existence. Mm. And so we could, we, can, we could actually take a whole episode as kind of checking down the attributes of God and realizing that every one of them flow instantly from this argument. Right, right. So I love the argument for three reasons. One is it gives us this great background understanding. Isaac's three ways. Sorry. Yeah, those are my three reasons. It gives us this great background understanding okay. of basic metaphysics. Right. And I'm going to say that Thomas is getting down to the basement level. If we examine reality, we can't through natural reason, go any further than down to being an essence. That is the no. most basic distinction we can we can come up with. Right. Number two, I like it because if you actually like rigorously examine this argument, it holds together. So I think it's like the most powerful argument. It's tough. And then the third reason I like it is because because it's so foundational, I think it tells us more about God than any of the other arguments do. Right. Take an intelligent design argument. Even if that argument gets off the ground, even if it's a good argument, and some people debate that, but even if it is, the best that we can say from the argument itself is there was something intelligent behind the forming of the universe. Right. It doesn't tell us that's God. It doesn't tell us that that's eternal. It right. doesn't tell us that it's a spirit. It doesn't tell us that it loves us, anything like that. Right. So that's kind of my third reason I love this argument is because it tells us more about God than any other argument for the existence of God that I know of. So there's a roughed out outline of Thomas's argument in the De Ente. That's awesome. Um, any thoughts about it? Any questions? Any kind of pushbacks? No, I uh, I think I did know more. So you were right. You weren't correct in saying that, uh, you know, I'm ignorant. I am very ignorant of a yeah. lot of things. But uh, I would say that I did know more about this than I thought I yeah. did. Um, yeah. So and it, and it is a wonderful argument, but I, I really I really had pieces, um, like puzzle pieces in my right. brain. So now I, I've got the puzzle, the big picture, pretty much assembled, and maybe there's a couple missing rather than a couple scattered on yeah. the floor. So uh, is the best way I guess I I could put it. But yeah, that's awesome. I think summary of this then is just just like say look. Thomas's first thing is to to prove that being and essence are distinct. Yeah, there's a real distinction, and then if there's a real distinction, we have to explain how things which have being and essence got their being. Right. You can either have it essentially, like the risability in man, yeah. or you can have something through an outside source. So step two is to prove that in composite beings, they have to get it from an outside source. Step three is not everything can be like that or you can't run an infinite causal series. So step four conclusion is there has to be a primary source of all things which exist, which is, in his words, ipsum esse subsistence, the sheer subsisting act of being itself. And this, to borrow his other lines, all men call God. There you go. Right? It's a beautiful argument. It's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Isaac. No, thank you. It's been a great episode. Thanks for letting me geek out. I don't get to do this very often. It's awesome. Hopefully, uh, hopefully everyone watching uh, is able to watch this and geek out as well. If you enjoyed this episode, like I said earlier, please comment, please subscribe, please share this with your friends, family, and neighbors. Um, until next time, uh, have a have a great evening from Spirit and Spire.